Welcome to Troblack TV's weekly podcast, where we feature the world's most extreme athletes. This week, we're featuring the legendary Sasha DeGillian, who captured the first female ascent of the magic mushroom on the north face of the Eiger. Sasha, welcome to our show. Sasha, this is Dan Griffin with Troblack TV. I am doing awesome. How are you doing? Mm, I'm okay. I'm uh, at home with a back injury. So oh, no. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, I injured uh, my QL muscle, which led to, like, a um, slip disc. is kind of like layman's term for it um, in my lower back. So Ouch. Not ideal, but the good thing is that it's, like, two weeks, and I should be feeling, like, mobile again. Uh, it's just a little setback. So, yeah, it's crazy, though. Like, using your, you realize how much your lower back connects to everything. Like, near you your lower back, it's just, like, disabling. Are you able to walk yeah. at all? Yeah, no. <laughs> I've, like, uh, well, I have two hours of PT every day now with my coach. And then in uh, two weeks, I'll be, like, like, back to my training schedule. Just maybe it'll be a little painful at first. Um, but, you know, it's funny because, you know, the saying that I always think of is the busiest person is the most productive person. And mm-hmm. now that I've kind of lost all sort of motivation to move, you would think that I would get on top of things like <laughs> emails and schoolers, but I think I'm, like, more behind on that than anything else because I just want to numb my mind out and watch TV and not think about the pain. Um, oh, God. <laughs> So I'm not really on top of anything in my life right now. Now, here's one good thing about being a climber. We all have strong backs and usually really strong yeah. cores. And it's always like like my coach was telling me today, like one of the most important things that seems counterintuitive is you have to keep moving mm-hmm. in order to like prevent it from freezing. It's just uh, tough, I guess, when it hurts to move. But, yeah, for sure, I think... Uh, about six years ago, I cracked a vertebrate, and that, I guess, is the only pain I can relate to this, because I've had it, my fair share of injuries as well, but when you have pain in your lower back, it's kind of hard to figure out how to isolate that pain to one spot, because it feels so all over, and um, yeah. Anyways, soliloquy of pain over. <laughs> You're going through that. What an inspiration you've been to so many women. Women want to climb like you. They want to be like you. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Uh, you know, I I really appreciate hearing that type of thing because you you don't really realize any of it when you're kind of just in it doing your daily grind. And, you know, like, like I said, with injuries, we all had kind of our ups and downs and I think with a career as an athlete as well you kind of have moments where you feel on top of the world and then you have moments where you just feel like you're not really doing well at anything and I, I think that that's really a natural thing to feel in the progression of your career but at the same time sometimes you kind of lose sight as to people caring or paying attention, especially with, 
you know, on social media, it creates such a transparent audience. And I think it creates an audience full of trolls as well as fans. And mm-hmm. whenever I, I see negative comments, it kind of outweighs the positive comments, even if it's like a 99 to 1 ratio of positive to negative. Uh, but maybe that goes into your constant striving to be like, a better climber, a better person, or trying to influence better. Um, but I always love, like, if I'm going to a signing or something like that, like, actually meeting people who are excited about what I've done or what I'm doing in my career, it, it's really a, this heartwarming feeling that never seems to get old, especially in moments when I feel down. It's like, oh, thanks. Most athletes find themselves in a position when they reach a certain level where there's a lot of responsibility that comes along with it they weren't expecting. Does that ever weigh on you a little bit? Um, I think that the responsibility is something that as a public person, no matter what size audience you have, is always going to be really important. And now more than ever, a lot of what we do as athletes or as brand ambassadors or really where my type of job is you're a brand in of itself. Um, I think it's being cognizant of what you put out there and that you're always representing your true values. And I think that the only way to really maintain on that path is to be a hundred percent you. Um, like, if you're trying to fake or feign some other personality, it's going to be apparent. Uh, so I think that that's the main thing that I try and practice in my own career. Um, but, but also being open to anyone. You know, I think that there are so many people out there that have so many different passions and so many different lifestyles, but... I think the underlying important factor is that people are doing what excites them most. And that ultimately is what, through my own climbing career, I want to inspire other people, whether they're climbers or not, to be doing. It's like recognizing what it is that kind of fuels that sort of excitement in you and then following that path and creating your own path toward making that your lifestyle. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Now, last year, you were the first woman to climb the magic mushroom on the Iger. You originally intended to climb Murder Wall. What what happened? So, magic mushroom is a route up the north face of the Iger, which has, like, its acronym, the Murder Wall. Um, So, both routes actually were on this... uh, media hyphenated name Murder Wall, which um, I kind of have mixed feelings about it being called Murder Wall. Like, kind of, to me, is a little bit of an exaggeration of it. But at the same time, the north face of the Iger is a notoriously dangerous climbing uh, terrain due to rockfall in particular. Um, And over 60 people have lost their lives on the north face of the Iger. But originally, my climbing partner, Carla Traversi, and I set out to climb a route called La Paciencia. And we were experiencing not-so-great weather on the Iger itself. 
while in town, it was actually the town of Grindelwald. It was actually pretty good weather for a Switzerland summer, but the problem was that it was unseasonably hot as well. Um, and so the water was melting from the inside of the rock and then it would steep out on the section that we were trying to climb. So for a large portion of while we were in Switzerland, the route that we wanted to climb was wet. Um, and I'm a full-time student at Columbia University, and I had my senior year starting at the beginning of September. And so we kind of had this, like, time crunch as mm. to climbing something on the Eiger, if we were going to try and do it or not, then that was our time window until beginning of September. Um, so about two and a half weeks into our um, effort of La Paciencia, which were by the majority part going really well, except for we couldn't climb certain sections that were just too wet. Like we were making a lot of strides. Uh, the main theme of the, the climb there was having patience and we kind of lost our patience <laughs> and uh, so we decided, yeah, at the end of the trip, well, if we wanted free climb, something on the north face of the Eiger, this is going to be much more certain than waiting out the weather and seeing what will happen. Uh, so, so then we just kind of moved camp over to the Magic Mushroom. Hmm. I heard that a couple climbers died next to you. Is that true? So um, our first trip up on La Paciencia, we were climbing uh, – on this part of the wall called the rope flu, rope flu, uh, and there were two climbers who were to the left of us on the normal route, which is like the 1938 route, and um, there was a storm coming in, and we had always been told leading up to the trip, don't be on the wall during a storm; it gets really dangerous, and that's when the rock fall is really bad. Uh, so we left. And apparently, the two climbers that were stayed there and continued up that section of the wall were carried out in body bags. Oh. Um, what what what's certain about that story? That's what was like rumored to us by people in town and by our photographer. Um, I'm not sure the details of what exactly happened to them. But it definitely, when we were told that, hit this this home of like, oh, wow, this is really serious. And the danger is pretty imminent. Like, you can be told something, but then when you actually experience it, that's when it really hits home. <laughs> the baby at night, uh, up on this ledge, that I was reading The White Spider while we were there. And in The White Spider book... <laughs> refers to that ledge as the death whack. And I was like, oh maybe I'm just going to, like, stop reading this here. Give <laughs> <laughs> you <be> nightmares. <laughs> well, I'm, like, sleeping in my harness tethered to, the, like, the side of the cliff. Uh, I read a, a quote by Reinhold Messer. He said, Sasha is on the way of becoming one of the leading climbing girls of the new century. What are your thoughts and feeling of one of the greatest mountaineers of our time to make such a compliment? 
Um, you know, it's incredibly humbling. Reinhold Messner is definitely one of my biggest inspirations in my career. Um, I think that he was just such a pioneer and the most iconic mountaineer that ever lived. And uh, I've had the privilege of working with him. We share a mutual sponsor, which is Adidas. And uh, he was actually the one who inspired this initial big wall trip that we took to the Dolomites in Italy. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. We were in Salt Lake City at dinner. And this was in 2011 in the winter. And um might have been beginning of 2012. And Reinhold, I'm saying this to my dinner, he takes the wine menu. This is like a fancy restaurant. He flips it over and, like, pulls out a pen and starts drawing the route on Kime uh, Oeste and the Dolomites. And he's like, this is the climb that you need to go do. Uh, and it happened to be Bella Vista, uh, which was just kind of funny because at the time I was really um, still competing in the indoor circuit quite a bit, and I was mainly just sport climbing. And so for two years, that that route kind of resonated in my mind, but I never actually acted on going and pursuing it until um, two years later, I was like, I should go to the Dolomites and try this big wall climb. So I teamed up with my friend, Edu Marin from Spain, and we went, and we actually had really lucky weather that year. Uh, so we did the climb quite quickly. Uh, this amazing 8C that Alex Huber established. Um, and yeah, that was my first real big wall experience. And I think that from that point on, it was a big turning point in my career of like, wow, this is like the real deal type climbing that I want to get more into. That's really interesting. You always wonder when, um, you know, there's a turning point in someone's career. Uh, why did it take a different direction? Yeah, totally. I think that, um, you know, I've always seen, if you consider who's the best climber in the world, I think that that's such an arbitrary analysis because there's so many different facets of the sport that you could look at the sport climbing, bouldering, competition scene, and think, like, automatically Adam Andra or someone like that. Um, but then when you think of the mountaineer world, you could think of um, people like Uli Stett setting amazing speed records or even people um, who are doing amazing feats on Everest or Denali or K2. Like, there's so much different terrain within the sport that, I think it's really tough to designate someone the best at climbing as a category. But mm-hmm. I think that what I'd like to strive for in my career is to be as multifaceted as possible. And so I started indoor climbing and I did a lot of competitions. Uh, I kind of went through that circuit and then I transitioned to more focused outdoors. And that was mainly started with outdoor sport climbs. And now I'm graduating more into big walls and dabbling with alpine climbing and learning how to track climb because I think that the the main domain that I want in my career is to not be limited by 
my ability to know how to do something. And so, like, mm-hmm. learning how to ice climb or learning how to try climb is really important to me because if I have a project that includes one of those variables of climbing, I don't want to be limited by the lack of knowledge of how to do that. Um, so I think that for me personally, that's been really an interesting kind of turn in my career and um, just trying to broaden my horizons to different fields of the sport. And what's really cool about it, too, is, like, it creates this terrain that I can be a beginner again. Like, when I start ice climbing, because, like, I had a license to just, like, suck and get fun <laughs> to new information and, like, not care uh, and not mm-hmm. have that Because I think that with sport climbing now, whether they're inflicted by just myself or by the help of other people, I do have this expectation to perform at a high level. Uh, whereas dabbling with new terrain, like, when I did my first trad lead, it was like, yes, I got to the top. Or like, wow, I just waded all my way into that piece of gear that I put in the wall. Like those little, like, beginner feelings. But just pretty cool that though I've been climbing since I was six, I still have an ability to experience something new. Yeah, I love that feeling of learning something new. It just feels yeah. fresh. And it reminds you of why you get into the sport in the first place. Yeah, climbing is kind of awesome in the way that you can start at any age, be at any level, and experience really similar feelings of satisfaction when you achieve something. It's like whether you're a beginner and you just did your first V2 that you're like throwing your head against the wall like a thousand times because you couldn't figure out a certain sequence on it and then you make it to the top of that boulder as a professional climber when you're like trying a B15 over and over and over again and then you finally do it. It's it's a similar field of satisfaction of realizing something that you didn't know you were capable of realizing. So true. So true. Yeah, it doesn't matter what level you're climbing at. If you're having fun, that's what it's all about in the first place. Exactly. The best climber so, is the one who's having the most fun. It's so true. I, I tell people that. I says, are you having fun? And you see them so frustrated. And I says, then do something <laughs> different. Do something different. Yeah. I know. It's a fine um, line, though, too, because I guess, like, part of it is frustration. It's part of that process, like, hating the climb at certain points and, like, loving it at certain points. Mm-hmm. But the, the fun definitely needs to outweigh the the um, dislike. Speaking of which, uh, <clears throat> when you're on a route that has so much danger like the Eiger, and it sounds like you have desires to do more of that, how do you deal with the fear? Because I've heard you talk about it a little bit. Um, I think that fear can be broken down into two categories. It's on the surface. It's rational fear and irrational fear. I think that you approach the two quite differently. Um one is rational fear is when there's crater-like rocks falling from the top of a wall thousands of feet up, and if you get hit by one of them, then that could be fatal. Um, and and doing everything that you can possibly to avoid that outcome. 
Um, irrational fear may be when you're at a point of high exposure and you feel kind of this, this feeling of nervousness um, when really you have a rope and if you fall, then it's going to be okay. Um, and, and then there's this other factor that kind of falls in the gray area of rational fear and irrational fear, which is when you're climbing like on the Eiger or on um, parts of the Dolomites that I experienced where you really don't want to fall at a certain place because your, your protection is far apart or on terrain that if you fall, it would be quite dangerous and you'd likely get hurt. And I think that when you're confronting irrational fear or that, that area of fear, you aren't thinking about falling when you're trying to succeed. Um, I think that the, the best way to overcome a sense of fear is by not even really acknowledging it. Um, not, not necessarily not acknowledging fear, but not acknowledging the fact that you could fall, just focusing on what's the present task and what is it that you need to do in order to accomplish that task and mm-hmm. being just a hundred percent present in that moment. And I think that that's something that's like this overarching theme of what I've learned in my career as an athlete and climbing is that you have to be present in the moment and something that I can apply from climbing to other factors in my life is this idea because in climbing it's like one meditative space in my life where I'm not trying to do a million things at once like all of the chaos from distractions or the digital world are silent and I'm just focusing on the next move Um, and I, I think that with fear a lot of it is just focusing on your next move and also um, kind of considering where you can classify that fear and if it is something that um, could potentially be really dangerous, then dealing with it in the um, kind of cautious way of how do you get out of that situation or how do you handle that situation. And if it's kind of this other category of irrational fear, then understanding it and understanding where it's coming from but also overcoming it by just acting and doing and don't have that sort of paralysis analysis. Interesting. All right. Do you have a particular mantra that you have going on in your head? Um, something that I used to always do when I was competing, like um, I would be climbing in like a World Cup and I would always sing to myself like some sort of catchy song. I. Uh, I, I tend to, when I'm climbing outside, really focus on my breathing a lot. Um, sometimes I'll still sing some songs, just like if I feel like I'm getting nervous, I'm like to calm myself down, sing some like cheesy pop songs. And what, would be, what would be a typical song? Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> back, uh, I still like sometimes go to it, but. One of my favorite songs to sing when I was climbing still is sort of, but I need to re-listen to it again to like refresh the lyrics. Was "Tide Is High." You know that song? Where it's like 
tied it, tied, but I'm holding on. Um, and, like, it goes like that. I'm not going to sing because that's just like, downright embarrassing. <laughs> but something like that that's, like, singable lyrics that you can apply to, like, what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's another song that was, like, by Eagle Eye Cherry that was called Don't Give Up. Don't Give Up. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah. And it's so true because the moment you do give up, it's over. The moment that you're climbing and you're thinking about falling, then you've already failed. It's like you have to just be confidently in it for that next move. No matter if you're climbing and you're really tired and you don't think that you can make it to the top, don't think about the top as the end goal. Just think of your next move as the, the end goal. It's like, can I make it one more move? Can I push a little bit higher? Like, you just want to make upward progress. <laughs> Hmm. My my friend always, uh, my friend that I was recently in Cuba with, she was like, just go a little more up than down this time. <laughs> it's a motivating. Uh, well, then that was like a good idea. Like, you go a little bit more up than you went down. What do you think the mountains have taught you when you look back on your experiences on the Eiger? Um, How insignificant we are. And... You know, we could be experiencing bad weather or feeling fear or feeling frustration or anxiety about trying to climb something that we just feel limited against the weather on. And there was kind of a saying that's written in German on the way up to the Eiger that says the Eiger doesn't care. And, you know, it doesn't, the Eiger doesn't care what the weather is like, what you're feeling about your climb or what's kind of going on in your world as this little insignificant climber who's trying to get to the top of this big mountain, it's like it's going to be there rain or shine, and it, it doesn't care about what you're thinking. Um, <laughs> but I think that what's really important to know, too, is that while we're such little small beings on this huge planet, we also collectively have a huge impact. And I think through climbing, that's something that I've definitely taken to heart as one of my causes. There's nothing worse than seeing trash along the trails or seeing litter in these environments that are so sacred. And, um, you know, the outdoors are a natural playground. And it's where we can go out and live our dreams and be active and have these amazing experiences. And if we don't take care of that, then we'll we'll really lose that sacred space. But it's also like who gives you the righteousness to leave your trash for someone else to pick up? And it's it's like if you're out on the trail and you see trash, obviously you're gonna pick it up. But it's just frustrating, you know. I've picked up more than my share. It's so frustrating. Yeah, it still it still blows me away that people do it. It blows me away too. It's like, <laughs> where do you think that bag of Doritos are gonna go? Um. So yeah, that's definitely become one of my pet peeves. The more active I am outside, and the more I really get to experience the outdoors, the more kind of experience 
especially in like national parks where there's so high traffic by volume of people going out to hike or um, explore these areas, great. But the impact can be quite devastating to these areas. We're not more responsible. Couldn't agree with you more. When you're um, preparing yourself for a hard sin, how do you get yourself in the right mindset? Um, you know, I think it really depends what sort of ascent I'm going for. Um, if it's something like a bigger project where I'll be on the wall for, like, with the IR where I was on the wall for longer than just a day or just 20 minutes, then I think that you kind of enter into this mindset through the process and uh, kind of... When I start a climbing trip, whether it's for single pitches or multi-pitches, I'd say I always take about a week of acclimation to just being outside and getting my groove of climbing back in, especially mm-hmm. when I'm coming from my life in New York because it's so starkly different. It's like in New York, I'm going to school and I'm going to train at a gym and I'm doing things that are very urban-centric, um, which is a different pace of life than when I'm outside and I'm hiking every day and going and climbing, and that's, like, the main objective of the day. So I, I, I guess the answer to that question is um, being in that zone of just being outside and being kind of in it mm-hmm. is how I prepare. Well, you're almost done with school, right? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I have less than two months. <laughs> less than two months, that's so awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I, I couldn't be more excited. Have you found it difficult to maintain your strength and endurance while in school? Um, certainly. I, I think that what I find works and doesn't work for me with my, my career right now is that when I'm in school and I'm taking on more things lately, like speaking and writing um, and travel for appearances, it's uh, it's not necessarily that beneficial to my athletic performance. And the best thing that I can do is to condition my body to be able and strong enough to switch back into that fear of being a high-performing athlete when I'm back outside. And so I kind of have this this seasonal thing worked out where during my summer break when I've been in school is when I have three months off of school um, to really get back outside and focus on my my objectives. And that's when I kind of target myself to be in my best shape and for that to be my season, um, which is kind of opposite than a lot of climbers because Typically, the fall is the best time to be outside climbing because the temperatures just everywhere are the best and the conditions are amazing. But um, my fall season is kind of washed away by school for the last four years. Um, so that's kind of cool to be, like, looking at the yeah. coming fall. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> I'm not going to be, like, in class. Um, but I think it's been tough because... I can't just on a whim go um, on a climbing trip for longer than like a weekend. And I've had a lot of privilege with my college career that being in school hasn't limited me from traveling, but definitely limited my climbing trips. And 
um, that's something I'm really excited about being able to have just this access to be living outside and be really committing myself to goals on the rock again. That's so awesome. Which gym were you going to in New York? Um, my coach, who I mainly train with, has a private gym, which is at, um, it's called Kinesis, and it's in the Flatiron District, or kind of Gramercy Flatiron area, um, hmm. on 27th Street. And then I also go to Chelsea Piers and the Cliff. I, I love Island Chelsea Street. Piers. Yeah, it's great. Are you in New York? Uh, no, I'm in California, but uh, every time I go to New York, I beeline right to Chelsea Piers. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's so it's, cool. That's pretty cool because it's like kind of like this big indoor playground. Um, and I also it's huge. Sometimes. Yeah, it's huge. I think it's, it's probably like one of the best gyms in New York City. Um, it's just not... I, I would venture to say the best gym in New York City. Uh, it's just not as traffic, I don't think, because it's on 12th Avenue. So it's like kind of a walk, I guess. Whereas like the equinoxes and stuff are like right on like 5th Ave or 8th Ave, whatever. But yeah, I think it's great. Hmm. So what's your ratio of climbing versus training, do you think? How much training do you um, do? When I'm, see, my bi- my weekly schedule is normally I'm training six days a week. So that means training with my coach two days a week, climbing in the gym two days a week, and ideally climbing outside two days a week. Sometimes it's more like training um, three days a week and climbing in the gym three days a week, and I have one off day. Um, but over the summer, I'd say that I'm just climbing outside five days a week and I'll do like exercises for my antagonist muscles to keep me from being injured. Um, like my coach wrote me kind of this, um, this routine to do at the end of the climbing day, which is always really hard for me to do because like after climbing, you just kind of want to sit back and drink a beer and chill um, or drink whatever, have dinner. Um, So I would say that over the summer and during my school semester, it's quite different routine. But when I'm on a climbing trip too, it's like there's so much more hiking involved and so much more activity just by day uh, because you, you hike out to where you're climbing and then you spend about like eight hours climbing and then you hike back. It's a long day. Yeah, long good days. I love those days. When you're training, um, I've heard that uh, you do a lot of interval training. What's that like? I do. Um, I do a high-intensity interval training routine with my coach, and uh, he, he creates the interval training based on – I'll have different workouts based on the – periodized schedule that I am and what type of um, objectives that I have. So all of it is I am directly training with him um, one-on-one, and it'll be kind of like hard to describe the exercises because 
they aren't like traditional exercises at all. They're all sport specific. So it's working targeted muscles that I'm going to use and be able to apply directly to climbing rather than like just standard push-ups and pull-ups because I could do pull-ups probably like nearly 40 pull-ups in a row, but that's not really going to help me progress in climbing if I just do pull-up after pull-up after pull-up because there aren't really climbs that you have to do 40 pull-ups in a row. It's Mm -hmm. more like how can you pull yourself up with this force factor working against you or what sort of muscles can you isolate from the other muscles and then really maximize uh, your strength in that region. Um, climbing is a really upper body dominant sport, but at the same time, you're using a lot, it's a very upper body and core dominant sport, but you're also using your legs and you need to have kind of this strong overall body. Um, so I'd say that through, through the week, every muscle is generally addressed. That when you're climbing, your whole body is engaged. Every muscle is engaged. So, yeah, so true. Totally. Just, just just doing pull-ups is only working a certain group of muscles. Yeah, I think that climbing is actually a really attractive sport to people who aren't even really interested in climbing so much as fitness because it's a sport that you can get a very overall body workout from. So true. How much do you think uh, the weight to strength ratio? You hear so much about that. Is there a particular weight that you try to keep? Um, you know, it really depends with that note on the objective as well. I would say that when I was younger, like um, four years ago or so, when I was really like, my goal was to win the world championships and win nationals and whatever, I was probably more calculated about what I was fueling my body with and what sort of caloric ratio I had. Whereas when you have a outdoor objective, you need to have sustainable energy over long periods of time. So even before the Iger, I actually was trying to gain some weight because I knew I was going to be losing weight while on the climb. And in that way, you start thinking about food as just direct fuel. And when you're on an alpine climb, it's like no matter what you're doing, you're not getting enough calories. So you're trying to eat as calorically dense foods as possible. Um, And I, I think that in general, when I'm on a climbing trip, it tends to be the case that even if I'm eating a lot of um, a lot of food, like generally I tend to eat really healthy, but I also have a soft spot for cookies hmm. at, <laughs> more often than not. Um, that instant gratification. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm definitely not a vegetarian or a vegan, and that's just my own choice. I think that. I tend to eat really responsibly, so I think that um, eating high-quality food is important because if you think of your body when you're an athlete as this high-performing vehicle, then you need to be fueling it with the highest-performance fuel as possible. Um, and I can feel that in my, my performance as well when I've been eating healthy, and that's when I feel like my body is performing well. Um 
climbing is one of the sports that especially lately is um, trending more towards the competition realm is I think that people are getting younger who are still competing indoors and perhaps strength to weight ratio is um, played with where there isn't too much science to back it up. Um, So I think that um, you, you just need to be aware of what you're doing when you're targeting a certain weight or you're targeting um, to focus on a certain thing in training, you need to have science and uh, ideally some sort of data to systematize what you're doing and to be able to stay on top of tracking how you can do something mm-hmm. to maximize your efficiency but not put your body um, at risk. Do you, do you track your food, how much you're eating and weigh it at all? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> For me, that sounds like way more work than I feel like committing to. Um, but at the same time, I do track my sleep, which is something that kind of not too many people do. I don't know who else does. But I take my sleep really seriously, and that could sound kind of funny, but um, I think that sleep is really important in performance, but also in just daily functioning. Like, if I haven't had um, eight hours or quality sleep, then I feel it. Uh, And I don't know if people who are active need more sleep or not, but I think that's something that I've definitely uh, kind of built into the structure of my, my living is that no matter how busy I may be, or what I may be working on that has a deadline to, I will go to sleep uh, at a reasonable hour if I have to wake up at a certain time. No, in the same way, I I prefer eight hours. If I get seven and a half hours, I could feel a bit. Seven hours, I definitely feel it. Any less than Uh, that, and and I'm dragging. Yeah, totally. I think that people oscillate in, like, their need of sleep between six and nine hours. But in general, um, people need about eight hours. I think that's like the average. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this next question has to do with something Tommy Codwell had said, and he said about indoor climbing on plastic. He said, going outdoors is almost a detriment if you want to be a high-end climber. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, I would be curious, uh, the context that Tommy said that. I think that high performance in climbing, it depends. You know, my high performance in climbing is I want to be high performing outside. And I feel like I'm climbing my best outside when I'm climbing outside. Um, and I feel like in competitions, if I want to be optimally performing in a competition, then I need to be training in a controlled gym environment. Um, and that's where the sport's kind of breaking onto this this new path that I think that the two different realms of indoor climbing and outdoor climbing are diverging as the sport becomes more popular and as people start climbing for different purposes. Um, I don't think that you can really excel in competitions if you've been on an outdoor climbing trip and then you just show up to a World Cup. Like, you probably won't do as well as the climber who's been in the gym training specific 
routines in order to perform well at that competition. Mm-hmm. But that said, I do feel like when I come back from a climbing trip, I'm generally in really good shape. Um, I, I think it's just like I wouldn't come back from climbing the north face of the Eiger and try and compete in a World Cup because it's, it's just such different terrain that you're dealing with. Um, oh, completely. But, yeah, I think that it, the two kind of have different different goals related to them. And when you're training specific movements in the gym, you can get really in shape for that specific thing. But it's more um, targeted. I have a tendency of agreeing with you there. Rumor has it you have your sights on free climbing around all cap. Yeah, I would like to free climb El Cap this fall. And uh, this summer I'm going to South America, and I have a project lined up with Felipe Camargo, who's um, one of the lead climbers. Uh, he's from Brazil, and we'll be climbing a big wall there. And in June, actually, I'll be out west. I'll be in Colorado and then Montana. And then I'm going to um, I'm going to Brazil, and then I'll be back in the U.S. at the end of August. What words of inspiration would you like to share with the Total Black community? Um, I would say that really by putting yourself out there and by taking that step towards what it is that makes you the most excited or that you're the most passionate about, you're not certain about whether or not you're capable of doing it, by putting yourself in that arena of trying is the only way that you'll ever know what you're truly capable of. So true. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening as well. Yeah, well, (laughs) Sasha, I can't thank you enough. You've truly been an inspiration to me and I'm sure all of our listeners. I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll uh, I'll talk to you later then. You got send it. And take care of yourself. What's that? Thanks. Send me the link when this is up. I'll share it as well. Right on. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That was incredible. Sasha left us with a number of great takeaways. One of my favorites, and I'm sure it's one of yours. If you find yourself at the base of a route and you're really nervous about the set, Start singing the lyrics to one of your favorite songs. You'll be amazed how it will quiet your mind. I know because I've done it myself, but I can't sing (laughs) nearly as good as Sasha. Until next week, my friends, this is Dan Goodwin with True Black TV, your entertainment source for extreme sports.